One of my father's favorite small adventures involved a peacock. One day, about 75 years ago, his sister Janet came to get him to let him know that their peacock, Birdie, had been attacked by a dog and was dying. George, my father, carefully collected Birdie and set him in some wood shavings in the planing shop. George carefully prepared Birdie's food and drink, and over time, Birdie came back to life. Recently, his mother had died. George was 12 and struggling. It helped him to be able to look after the peacock. This story became more and more important as my father aged and his body and mind started to fail. He remembered the time when he had brought a creature back to life, just as he longed for new life himself. We all supported this vision, and so pictures of peacocks started to appear in his home. We bought some peacock napkins. He painted a number of memorable watercolors in his last years, including today's bulletin cover. And today, um, if I hadn't spilt the coffee and burnt the oatmeal this morning and distracted myself from remembering them, we would have some peacock feathers on the altar here that had been stewarded for many years by Mary Grow, who had gotten them off my father's father. They are probably peacock feathers from Birdie, and I now have a number of them in my home. All of this fits into the long history of how Christians have viewed the peacock as a symbol of Christ and of the resurrection, fitting into the practice of looking into the natural world for allegories and insight on how to follow God. The ancient Greeks thought that peacock flesh did not decay, and this belief persisted into Christianity. The peacock represented humility, for although its display is very beautiful, it is commonly kept hidden. When the tail display is shown, it looks like hundreds of eyes echoing the scripture from Revelation. In the middle of the throne and around it were four living creatures all studded with eyes in front and behind. So in this way, the peacock suggests the all-seeing eye of God. The peacock loses his feathers every year and then renews them, strengthening his connection to the resurrection. Peacocks kill snakes and were referred to as slayers of serpents, giving them meaning as a symbol of Christ. These ancient ways of finding God in all things may not be our ways, given our attention to science and rationality, looking out at the world, seeing what happens, expecting a certain result, testing it. But different ways of knowing can help us all understand ourselves. This Easter, in their own celebration of the resurrection, my mother and my sister made bold to ask my father if he would give the prayer for their Easter meal. More and more in the last year, he, has, he had been refusing or even ignoring these opportunities. But this time he agreed. It took him a long time to get the words out. But here, 
paraphrased and secondhand, like so much of our faith, is his prayer. So let us pray. I am at the end of my life. I'm thankful for the place where I'm cared for. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for the hope that comes from the resurrection. Lord, you were gracious in your death. May we all be gracious in our deaths. Amen. My father tried to live into this resurrection life, looking to live in a world where the rain falls on the just and the unjust through small adventures that sought flourishing and justice for all. His mother died when he was a child. Subsequently, he was mistreated by his stepmother, Peggy. I remember as a child being amazed to learn this tragic family story because I already knew how gentle he was with Peggy and how much time our family spent with her. Even more importantly, George was a good and gentle parent and broke this cycle of pain and absence. My father was not a stereotypically strong man, but I have often been amazed at the strength he must have had to give me the gentle childhood that I had. I have, in the months since my father's death, had many opportunities to reflect on his passing and some of what I recognize now as special gifts of his. At the end, easy exit from his sojourn, living, breathing, and walking through this world. So in what remains of the sermon this morning, I want to talk about some of these and other gifts that we encounter at the end of life. And I've taken up just about half my time with this long introduction, which was taken from the eulogy that I gave at my father's memorial service, partly because it focuses on what I hope is my main idea, although this sermon turned out very differently than I was expecting when I started. And that is that the resurrection reshapes how we think about life and offers all of us the opportunity to look towards death as transition and also because I think that our personal stories are often our truest testimony. I've shared with you before in sharing times over the last number of years here that my father, ever since a traumatic brain injury 10 years ago, suffered after an unhappy bicycle accident, has not exactly been the same person he was before. And that again, that he in this last year leading up to his death was more and more detached and unengaged in his life, often sleeping for most of the day, immediately impulsive and angry whenever he heard a loud sound or someone bumped his wheelchair. I remember a profound sense of loss when my sister FaceTimed me from his apartment and put the camera up to his face. He said, hi Trev, and then dropped his head. The stimulation of it was too much for him. Losing the ability to talk to him at distance was hard for me, given I live four hours away. What I've come to realize about this 
is that I was needing, that I, that I was being forced to lose small parts of him regularly, right up until he died. However, giving these things up has also meant that since his death, I have been able to let go of him more slowly, losing small parts of him regularly, but also incorporating aspects of him into my life with more meaning. When I embark on my daily bike ride to and from work downtown Ann Arbor, it is as a direct repetition of the huge amount of bike riding that he did. When I saw my mother at Canadian Thanksgiving last weekend, I received from her this ring, which she bought for him after he had lost his wedding band. Wearing the replacement now reminds me of my father. Susan says that it looks kind of dorky on this finger. That also reminds me of my father. And it also reminds me of the delight that I felt when, as a child, digging around in the couch one day, I found a real wedding band. He, he got it back. I'm making choices to hold my father in me. And I'm also being picky about what I'm holding on to and what I'm letting go. The resurrection reminds us that death is not the end but it also challenges us to think and to indeed work on our memories. What do we hold? What do we let go? One of the things that we know about our society is that we need a better way of thinking and talking and receiving medical care around death. I won't pretend to any special general insight here, the work of Atul Gawande on focusing our attention on well-being rather than survival is probably one key starting point. But the brief insight that I do want to lift up for our attention comes from the work that many of us do walking with non-human animals around death. When my cat Tiamat died, the university that I worked for refused to publish a death notice to the university community. I found this really frustrating because they routinely publish death notices for the immediate family in both directions, your children, but also your um, siblings and parents. Since the university email list was unprotected, I just sent my own notice out immediately so that everyone would know what had happened. My students had a better sense of how important Tiamat was to me. We had an exam review session planned for the day after Tiamat's death, and they reached out to say that I didn't need to hold it if I wasn't up for it. The death of an animal can be particularly hard because we have almost no good ways of talking about what they mean for us, what we have lost when they are gone. We don't have these ways of talking partly because some institutions refuse to host the conversation, and partly because we haven't talked enough with each other about death. One of the challenges that we have in believing in the regular Christian narrative about death is that it can be challenging to hold our narrative about personal life after death alongside what we know about ecological cycles and the end of time. The earth ends in fire, in both the religious story told in the book of Revelation and in the scientific account that sees the planets engulfed by the sun. But still, it strains our credibility to believe in an everlasting life. It might be easier 
for us to believe in life after death if we had more Enoch's and Elijah's and Jesus is around who either don't die or who die and then are resurrected and ascend. It's interesting that in both Elijah's and Jesus' case, there's a very clear transition that happens in terms of who picks up the work now that they are gone. It is Elisha's or the disciples' job to incorporate the best parts of who Elijah and Jesus were and to bring those into the future. And this is our common, more uncontroversial view of life after death. That the person who has gone lives on in our memories, in our actions, in our becoming the best parts of who they might have been. The idea of a personal life after death is trickier for us for a variety of reasons. This idea that I will persist after my death as Trevor, as an individual. However, the logic of the resurrection is personal. It calls us to believe not just that Jesus lives on in our memories, but that Jesus lives on continuing his earthly life, scars in his hand and all. It is not Jesus that saves himself on the cross. Resurrection is something that God does to Jesus. Resurrection is something that God does to humanity. And because resurrection is a part of God's logic of abundance, a part of the way that God brings more into the world in every moment than we would need, it makes sense to think that resurrection is something that God does to all of creation. If our ecological system thinking does anything for us, it teaches us that we are all connected to each other, not just human to human, but human to cat, to ant, to the earth. Once I realized how important that my cat Tiamat was to me, it became easier to believe not just in life after death for her, but life after death in general. Tiamat showed me, in how close our relationship became, new possibilities for what it means for humans to relate to non-human animals. I didn't think I liked cats when I got her. I became a huge cat person by the end of her life. It was an entire shift of worldview in terms of how I related to the world. And so that lesson, the lesson that I learned from Tiamat about how to relate to cats, is also a lesson about how humans relate to humans. Now, I've focused on mostly positive and personal stories this morning. I focused on positive stories partly because I can. My relationship with my father is something I can celebrate, much more so than his relationship with his stepmother. Sometimes death is difficult because it represents the unsaid and the challenging more than love and friendship. The resurrection helps us here as well, for the resurrection is not about denying pain, but about redeeming it. And this shows us that resurrection is personal, because pain is personal. We are wounded by different things. Danny and Curtis and Shelley and Brian and Mary 
all of whom have lost important creatures, parents, um, who have been a part of this service today, each have a very different experience of how this happens. Maybe we'll hear some of that in the sharing time, maybe not. Um, but if they were up here giving this sermon, giving ways that they approach these kinds of questions and these transitions, you would hear a different story. And that is a good thing. All of that is taken up. The resurrection asks us to see the world the way God sees it, as both the glory of the peacock's display and the peacock broken and bruised, yearning for new life. And the resurrection asks us to respond. We are taught to live this way by Christ, who showed us how to live. We are justified in this way of life by God, who recognized the anguish and injustice done to Christ and brought about the resurrection, showing us that this way of living is beautiful and true and right. And we are empowered to live this way by the Holy Spirit, who breathes on us in surprising and diverse ways, encouraging us to love the things that God loves, often shifting our worldview and realigning our vision. May we all find our own ways to follow Jesus. Amen.